This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. They weren't exactly jumping for joy, but this week those with a mortgage were at least breathing a sigh of relief after 10 consecutive rate rises. Yeah, home borrowers have a reprieve, a month of uh, breathing space for now. The Reserve Bank has kept the cash rate on hold at 3.6%. It also has all sorts of implications for those hoping to buy. But the reprieve could be short-lived because, as RBA Governor Philip Lowe warned the next day, more interest rate increases may be on the cards. I do think it's premature to be talking about interest rate cuts. Remember, we've got the highest inflation rate in 30 years, the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, and still two years before we get inflation back to the top of the target range. So I think it's too early, way too early to be talking about interest rate cuts and the balance of risk lie to further rate rises. So why the pause? Well, the Reserve Bank Board says it wants more time to see how the recent hikes are affecting spending. They are, of course, designed to make us spend less. But the central bank has also raised concerns about the stability of the global economy. Julian McCormack is an investment analyst with Platinum Asset Management. We in Australia have a very, very sensitive economy to interest rates. Um, because of the nature of our property market and our mortgage market. So lots of variable loans in the market and those that are fixed are fixed for pretty short periods of time versus other markets globally. So we're very sensitive to interest rates. We've raised a lot pretty quickly and it looks like a pause to wait and see and that's pretty prudent, that's pretty sensible. Is that the reason that we are pausing when, for example, in the United States interest rates are still going up? Yes, yes, precisely. So in the States, they don't have a mortgage channel that is sensitive to interest rates. So in the States, about 90% of all mortgages and only a third of homes are owned under a mortgage So or something like that in the States. So of those that are, 90% are fixed. So when the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the States, when they raise rates, it doesn't directly affect mortgages. And they're fixed for life, right? Fixed for 30 years, generally. Mm. So there's different tenors, but of of those that are fixed, uh, 85% of the 90, uh, rough, rough numbers, are fixed at 30 years. And they can refinance lower any time for very little penalty. So it's a a very different structure of markets. So so what can the Federal Reserve affect? It can affect activity principally in construction rather than consumption of people who have a mortgage. Mm. So when the RBA makes a decision, obviously they release a statement too. And this week they spoke about the global economy and concern particularly about banks What's your read on the global outlook? So two things. The first is there has been such extraordinary funding made available to banks that it doesn't at all look like a crisis is imminent because the spot fires are all being put out. And so when I say that, folks can can look for Federal Home Loan Bank credit issuance. If you just Google that, you'll see that around about $400 billion has been done 
by US federal home loan bank outlets. That thing of FHLBs, they are the emergency funding source for small banks in the States and they've done, like I say, $400 billion. That's a really big number. That sounds um, kind of bad. Exactly. It sounds bad because it, it is in the immediate sense. It's bad that the bank requires the emergency funding but the, the nuance there is the emergency, the emergency funding is available. So what happened in the GSC was we were all caught sort of systemically unaware and the spot fires didn't get put out for months and years. And this event looks pretty different. So it's not, it's not that same thing again. But in the same way as, you know, all the truisms about, you know, the, the safest time to fly is just after an aeroplane crash because they go and check all their safety systems and blah, blah, blah. We must be careful of not fighting yesterday's battles. It's not the same event. There is genuine stress in the banking system, which is being met by huge amounts of emergency funding. But then what happens after that? And, and the then what happens after that is, a very significant tightening of credit conditions globally, which is felt over months and years thereafter. That, so it's not a, oh my God, everything's falling off a cliff right now because we're going into a banking crisis. It's much more like, ah, okay, so funding's going in to fix up the bad banks in the immediate term, but then they will have to adjust their behaviour, which just means credit becomes less available and more expensive and that slows everything down. And, and that looks like it's in train now and will affect conditions for months and years henceforth. So are we now in a completely new cycle for the global economy? And, and how long would that cycle last? Yeah, we're, we're in a new old world. So we really do have high inflation in the system. And you just need to think about your own personal circumstances to understand what that means. I'm not, you're not, and most of the listeners won't accept anything less than a cost of living upward adjustment in our wages now. And if we don't get that, we'll be looking around for a new job. And we haven't had a cycle like that for a, a really long time. I mean, really since the 90s at least, and probably since the late 70s, early 80s. So when people are talking about, oh, I used to have a mortgage of 15%, in Australia, inflation is higher now than when you had that 15% mortgage. So this is a very different environment to what we've been in for the last, say, 20 years, certainly 15 years. But it's much more like the late 70s, early 80s or early 90s, mid-90s recessions where you, you had high inflation that needed to be stamped out and that takes a long time. So how's that going to manifest in terms of things like unemployment, company collapses and the like? Yeah, we will see all of those most likely. Um, unemployment up? Unemployment up, personal bankruptcies, you know, personal insolvencies, business bankruptcies, that, that kind of thing. Because we have just had this, in a sense, worst of all possible worlds for building vulnerability into the system. Most people didn't think or feel that inflation could go up and rates could go up very quickly. And that then builds into the system, sort of ironically, the very ability for that to happen. So, so we got this incredible stimulative response globally prompted by the pandemic. And that was because no developed world central bank had to deal with inflation in any 
um, serious way for at least sort of 20 years and getting on for 30 years. And so, therefore, you got this huge stimulus response, which basically went straight into people's bank accounts, and it didn't affect rates because the central banks were printing money to meet the fiscal response. So, fiscal is government mm. and, and monetary is is basically interest rates, and they're both working in the same way. That then causes inflation. And so the problem is, is that people were lulled into a sense of security. They're not going to have heaps of gearing because interest rates won't go up, and then they have to go up very quickly. And so now we're one year, basically, into a global rate-raising cycle, and you don't feel the effects for about a year. So we're beginning to feel the effects now. Speaking of rates, what will happen next? What will happen in Australia with the RBA after this pause? I would hazard a guess that we stay at this rate without further increases, but we stay at this rate for quite a while. I would hazard a guess that that's the case. You know, I, I understand that, uh, you know, Phil Lowe was saying the next move would be a rate rise, but... I think that's just jawboning. That's telling us as, as you know, consumers and little economic agents, that's telling us to pull our heads in, mm. in the same way as the mid-21 guidance around no rate rise until 2024. That was telling us to, to, to go and consume and be active. Mm. So, so central banks don't predict the future. They tell us what they want us to do via these statements. So what he is expressing is, you know, things are pretty hot. And if you keep going at it like you are, I will raise rates. Trying to frighten us into tightening the purse strings, if you like. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. That's Julian McCormack. He's an investment analyst with Platinum Asset Management. As well as interest rates, RBA Governor Philip Lowe was also talking about housing and the lack of supply, which of course drives up home prices and in turn makes inflation worse. And this week, a new government report highlighted what many Australians already knew. We are headed for a massive shortfall in housing in the years ahead. This is the third flagship report into the state of the nation's housing from the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation, and it paints a pretty dire picture. Adrian Pisarski is a former CEO of National Shelter, which is the body representing the housing interests of low-income households. It's harder than it has ever been, really. I can't recall another time that's been this difficult, and I only bought housing myself in my mid-40s, so I know that it was a, a struggle on relatively low incomes, even for me to do it over that period of time, but I think it's much harder now. The federal government does have a $10 billion housing policy, but it's been blocked by the Coalition and the Greens. So why is Parliament standing in the way? I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me they'd moved 13 times in the last 13 years. That potentially means changing schools for kids and doctors and goodness knows what else. So it's it's a huge financial but also social and emotional cost that I think gets imposed on people. And the lower your income, the more vulnerable you are, the worse that experience is. So in your mind, what is the root cause of all that disruption and pain? I think there's a few root causes. Um, the principal one has been a lack of investment in social and affordable housing. You know, over 40 years, we have really disinvested in social and affordable housing. 
we used to have approaching 7% of all of our housing was social housing. It's now below or hovering around the 4% mark. So it's it's almost halved over that period of time. And that means that the most vulnerable are even more vulnerable. On top of that, we've had a shift where home or housing has become commodified. So it's now seen by more people as an investment than a secure place in which to live. And more recently, we've had things like short-term accommodation crowding out the market, creating more pressure. We've had high immigration levels through that whole period of time, which have kept pressure on our housing markets and high rates of household formation. So we have fewer people living in every house than we used to. And that means Overall, we need more supply, and we just haven't been keeping up on any of those fronts. So it's it's multiple failures in multiple areas. We now have a Prime Minister who perhaps understands better than most the, the pressures of, of public housing. He grew up in public housing, and he is moving ahead or attempting to with a, a big policy in this space. Just explain to us in very simple terms what the Albanese government's housing policy is hoping to deliver. There's a few prongs to it. Um, the most serious one is the Housing Australia Future Fund, which um, wants to establish a future fund of some $10 billion, which will earn money on an annual basis to be spent on social and affordable housing. They anticipate they can build 30,000 properties over the first five years using that future fund, although I can't quite make that maths work out in terms of the annual return that they'll get on the future fund. Um, I guess it depends on your definition of what an affordable house is in terms of how much the government policy is going to subsidise homes. That's right, and and exactly what it's used for in terms of, um, for example, if community housing providers are utilising it, are they expected to leverage that with funds from state governments or from, for example, superannuation funds to make that money go further than it otherwise would or would on the surface of it? How much would that policy help? Because I understand that the shortfall in social and affordable housing is is somewhere up above 400,000 and the government's suggesting this, this might provide 30,000 a year. So there's still a big shortfall. It doesn't actually meet that need or go anywhere near meeting that need. And I think this has been one of the problems that we've had over a long period of time now, that the body politic just doesn't recognise the scale of the problem that we have for people on low incomes in vulnerable situations. So this housing policy is being blocked in Parliament on several fronts, firstly by the opposition, but also more unusually by the Greens. And the reason, they say, is because the policy doesn't go far enough. What's your view on the Greens' approach? Well, I hope they are not going to oppose it out of bloody-mindedness and create the problems that we've had uh, with environmental legislation in the past where we, where we get nothing instead of something moderate. Um, something moderate is always better than nothing. So my advice to them would be, sure, negotiate for an improved package, as you see is needed, and I would agree is needed, but don't be so bloody-minded that you actually oppose the legislation totally because it would create a roadblock 
that you know would take years to um, overcome and recreate, and we really need action desperately right now. Do you have any ideas on how this impasse could be broken? Well, I think Labor could consider increasing the scale of their future fund. Um, remember, this is money that is initially borrowed. It doesn't impact the budget, as it were. So if you're borrowing $10 billion, why couldn't you borrow 15 or $20 um, and do twice as much? So that would be one thing that I think they could consider just to increase the scale of it. Um, you know, there's still a risk with any borrowed money that's then invested getting the return that you want um, so that you can invest, although the average return over the last 10 years from the Australian Future Fund has been around 9.7%. So that is nearly twice as much of a return as, as the maximum that they're saying that they can allow the uh, Future Fund to be used for within this legislation. So they could increase the size and scale of that future fund. What's your feeling, though? I mean, are you hopeful that any of that could happen? Oh, look, I am sure that, a, that a, a reasonable compromise will be arrived at. I don't know exactly what that's going to be. I'm not involved directly in those negotiations, but I would find it inconceivable that the Greens would actually hold up this legislation simply because it doesn't do enough. In the meantime, though, round and round we go again on housing policy. I wonder how you feel thinking about the younger generation and the challenges they face, not just as homeowners, but, but renters as well. Um, I feel tragic and sad. It's, it's, you know, we have been talking about this for so long and we have proposed so many different policies that we think need to be done. You know, the rental market at the moment is an incredibly brutal place and the whole basis of ownership of rental properties is built on this notion of small mum and dad investors owning one, two, three or however many um, dwellings that they own. And most sensible countries around the world have institutional investment in their rental markets, which provides for secure housing on a reasonable investment basis, which doesn't add to inflation and doesn't require massive tax subsidies to keep it going. So virtually everything about our rental system is wrong and it really needs to be addressed. Um, but it isn't only the rental system. Our whole system of housing is predicated on people making money out of it um, and largely through tax incentives which distort our markets so that we build housing which is too big, is under-occupied and not fit for purpose. Adrian Pasarski, the former CEO of National Shelter. Well, millions of Australians have the TikTok app on their phones to view and share mostly light-hearted videos. Tell me how you know your boyfriend won't cheat on you without telling me how you know your boyfriend won't cheat on you. And what seems to be an endless stream of dance clips. It's immensely popular, but this week there were moves to ban it on government devices. And here's a hint. It's not because of public servant dance moves. The federal opposition supports the ban and a number of states are following suit. But in Beijing, the Chinese foreign ministry called the move an abuse of power. 
And TikTok's general manager for Australia and New Zealand, Lee Hunter, says the company is being unfairly targeted. We want to stress to them that there's no evidence to support the idea that TikTok is in any way a security risk to Australians. And we don't want to be treated differently to other social media and messaging platforms either. We want to be looked at based on the facts, based on evidence and and true deliberation. Catherine Manstead is Senior Fellow in the Practice of National Security at ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. She's also Director of Cyber Intelligence at the internet security company CyberCX. There are really two classes of concerns here. One is around data access, so data collection and access by the TikTok platform itself. Uh, And then, of course, who else might be able to access that data? And the big concern for TikTok is that the Chinese government might be able to access that data. The second group of concerns is around influence. We know social media platforms have huge influence. They influence what we see, how we feel. They enter into our political debate. And all platforms have a degree of control about what gets prioritised and what gets deprioritized or deplatformed, the concern for TikTok, again, is that connection back to the Chinese government. This is a government known for surveillance, known for censorship, and that's a concern when it is a platform that is being used by so many in Australia. We'll come back to the question of influence, but just on data harvesting, just explicitly explain what the danger is here. What sort of data can be taken, can be harvested, from, for example, a, a government worker's phone? Yeah, so there's a wide range of data that TikTok collects. It's not just the content you post publicly. In fact, in many respects, creating content and posting it's the least of your worries because you're doing that with your eyes wide open. You know if you're creating a funny video and you're putting it out there in the public domain uh, that that's something that you're comfortable for everyone to see. What else does TikTok collect? It collects location data. They collect information about our phone, the model and the operating system we're using. It's regularly reading the copy-paste clipboards of users. So if you're dealing in other apps or messages and you've got something sitting in your clipboard, there's evidence to suggest TikTok can look at that. Uh, It understands what apps your device is running. It knows what apps you've got installed. Sometimes it can look at your browsing and your search history as well. Now, ultimately, that's because TikTok, like many social media apps, is optimised as a data-collecting behemoth. You don't pay for this service, right? And if you don't pay for a service online, you know you're the product. It's collecting it because it's good business for TikTok to know all of this stuff. But the unfortunate reality is this is an incredibly rich picture of information that can be used for a lot of nefarious purposes as well. Is that any different, though, to what Facebook or Google does? They also harvest an immense amount of data and they are also subject to seizure of that data by Western governments. Look, there are a couple of distinctions. The first thing to note is no social media company can stand up and say that it is a privacy leader. And that's for the very fact that social media platforms are based on the idea that you voluntarily sign up. You're not paying to use this service. Your data is being collected. It's often being sold on for advertising and other purposes. The distinction for TikTok is a couple of things. One, Even compared to other social media companies, TikTok has had a bit of a problem with coming clean about the type of data that it collects and who can access it. So we've had a number of instances now where TikTok leaders and executives have said, oh, this type of data isn't collected, and then it turns out, oh, that type of data is collected. So that's not good from a transparency perspective. The second issue is one around government access. It's a really different position 
from being in a democracy like Australia versus an authoritarian regime, particularly one that is of a nature like the Chinese Communist Party that thrives on data access that is opaque. It surveils its own domestic population and it also surveils populations abroad. And so what we're looking at here is Chinese laws that require companies with that a nexus to China, and TikTok has its its parent, is, is based in China, it's a Chinese company. Chinese law requires those companies to cooperate with the Chinese government and it also gags those companies from talking about when they do. So even if TikTok, uh, and I'm sure many TikTok employees particularly those in Australia but all around the world, want to do the right thing and they can make assurances that they will do the right thing. But the reality is when the rubber hits the road and the Chinese Communist Party comes knocking, you've got to do what they ask of you and you can't necessarily disclose that back to your users. Because TikTok claims it's been unfairly singled out. I guess the question really is if the tables were turned and, for example, Australia had developed TikTok, is there any chance that it would be allowed to operate without restriction in China? Well, the reality is no Western social media company can operate in China. And China, if we, if we talk about who's led the world in terms of, of having a level of control over their information environment, it's China. China, uh, from the 1990s, was setting up its Great Firewall, uh, which restricts quite heavily what information flows can get into China. And over the last couple of decades has been cracking down on social media, Western social media companies operating within China. You can't access Twitter or Facebook if you're an ordinary person within China. You just don't get to see that. Mm. So now to the question of, of influence. Is the suggestion that not only is our information being harvested, but our thoughts are kind of being, what, manipulated somehow when we use TikTok? Yeah, let's take a non-TikTok example and look at the power of social media to influence political thought, to interfere in democracies. So if we wind back a couple of years, back to 2016, there were widespread allegations that Russia, the Russian government was interfering in US politics and those allegations have never stopped and, and neither has the interference by uh, messing around with Facebook and other social media companies by buying ads, for example, that were pushing certain divisive messages into US politics by infiltrating and manipulating groups of interest on Facebook really to interfere with US democracy, to exacerbate political polarisation and in some sense to tear America apart. So we see that foreign governments and authoritarian governments increasingly have an intent to do this type of information manipulation, foreign interference. And when it comes to something like TikTok, you've got a number of issues in play. You've got the fact that it is dominant. It's got a level of dominance in Australia. It is more popular now among young people than even Facebook and Instagram are. But it's also got this nexus back to the Chinese Communist Party. And the Chinese Communist Party increasingly uses those Russian-style interference tactics. It's used them quite heavily in Hong Kong, in Taiwan to interfere in elections. We see it attempting to use disinformation and interference campaigns more broadly, including in Australia. And of course, then the question becomes, if you've got such a powerful tool that you can potentially control or direct, that's a hard temptation to resist for an authoritarian government. And that adds into the risk picture for Australia. Do we want our information ecosystem to be able to be controlled or directed or manipulated by a foreign authoritarian government. 
So there is some talk of restricting or even banning TikTok more broadly. Is that a realistic proposition? Is it needed? Or is all of that talk more about kind of political chest thumping? Look, I think the way that Australia has approached it at the moment, looking at narrow bans, is a really welcome and appropriate step. Just explain that for us. Narrow bans, what I mean by that, not necessarily coming out and saying in blanket TikTok is banned across the nation, but saying in these instances that the risk is just too much. We cannot tolerate the espionage risk and possibly that interference risk. I would be very surprised if we don't see more narrow bans where organisations decide that it's just not within their risk tolerance to uh, allow or to use TikTok. Do we need a nationwide ban? I don't think that we need to go there at this stage. What I think is the perfect and interim step is to have a bit more of a broader national conversation around what the risks are because if the government leads on explaining what the risks are, that positions organisations, businesses and individuals to make a risk-based decision for themselves. That's Catherine Manstead. She's a director of cyber intelligence at the internet security company CyberCX. And that's the episode for this week. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.